On today's episode of Cyber, we're here to talk about the new novel, Afterworld. It's the first novel from author Debbie Urbanski, who's here to talk to us today. It is narrated by an AI called Storyworker, who's tasked with telling the story of Senanon, who is the last human on Earth. This AI is trained on the novels of the 21st century. And as this story worker starts to learn more about Sen and about her life, there seems to be something human coming out of this AI. I won't get too far into the book and spoiling it all for you. That'll be for the second half of this episode. But you should absolutely read this book. And we're going to talk a little bit at the beginning of this episode about more broad topics that Afterworld brings up including AI, fear, and climate. So enjoy. I think I wanted to start this conversation off by, uh, this was so sad. (laughs) I I feel like I, I was telling Matt about this as I was starting to read the book and I was like, you know, the first like 40, 50 pages, I'm like, damn, this is some really heavy stuff. Like I'm really upset right now. Like this is, this is hard. This is, there's so much that, you know, the characters are dealing with in this book. And then that sadness turned into a, okay, but I need to know what happens now. Like, they're neat, like, there's so much going on in the universe of this book. There's so much going on within this world. There's so much that I want to have answered that the only way out really is through. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, it really struck me not only about the experience of reading the book, but also about, you know, afterworld altogether. Um, I love how you say that it's really sad, but you laughed during it. I think that's lovely because I have heard uh, people have had a lot of different reactions to the book. Um, I have heard that some people there's so, some humor, I hope. And, you know, it still is a, like you said, a, a, a novel that you want to reach the end, but it is grappling with some um, big questions like our future, <laughs> the future of humans, right? And extinction and AI's role in that and um, how we address climate change uh, too. So, And why are humans extinct? What happened? I know that that's, you know, a large part of the, 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 the revealing process, but I think like a little, a little tease at the beginning here. So when I'm explaining about human, when I'm talking about human extinction, I guess, yeah, humans went extinct to um, to save the planet since um, uh, they take up a lot of resources. And when they're not physically there, um, the Earth will have time to, to heal, I guess, repair itself. Yeah. And the first way that both of us were, I think, introduced to your work is through a short story that you published here on Motherboard 
a couple of years ago that actually takes place within the universe of Afterworld. Um, did you have the idea at the time where you wrote that short story being like, hey, this feels like it's ripe for expansion? I had been playing around with the idea of human extinction, a novel about human extinction, a little bit before I wrote that short piece. And I was wondering if I could pull it off, uh, you know, if I could convince people that it could be a possibility, an ending for us. So in in 2017, when I wrote that short piece, um, I was starting to sense we as a country and maybe the world were moving um, away from what we needed to do to, you know, reverse climate change. It might have been even too late back then, but, you know, the EPA was being dismantled. uh, some national monuments in Utah, I think a million acres uh, were going to be unprotected. So um, I was starting to feel like up until that point, um, I felt like, you know, recycling and me making my own yogurt and trying to ride my bike might. It seems ridiculous in retrospect, but I think that was the message we were being told that, um, you know, it, we, our individual decisions could solve climate change. And I just felt in 2017, you know, no, that's, that's like totally wrong. So um, my goal was to find a way from human extinction to, or from where we are now to human extinction. And um, it was started off as a thought experiment. And I'm so grateful that um, Brian Merchant, who was the editor, thought it it was a story. I wasn't even sure it was a story when I sent it to him, but I love that he he took the risk because I think it connected with a lot of people. Um, I was recently on Reddit's uh, Claps, Claps forum, which has a lot of people thinking about like what's going to happen to humanity in the future. And I reposted that. Um, uh, it just seemed pertinent. And a lot of people mentioned that they remember it still from when it was published on Motherboard and it's kind of stayed with them. So it was interesting to hear, um, you know, if it was going to be updated, what would people change about it? Um, Because we, you know, some stuff about maybe overpopulation um, uh, might be a little different now, now that fertility rates are dropping. But Yeah, we'll definitely get to talk a little bit more about that in the second half of our conversation. Um, but moving away a little bit just for a moment from climate and more into the AI, has your feelings around AI changed since you started writing the book, which was in 2019? Um, I started, I added AI in 2019. Yeah. So I started officially writing it in 2016, but in, uh, it's been a long journey. In 2019, um, I finally got an agent and the book was really fragmented intentionally, but she thought having a cohesive narrator would help. So, um, yeah, back then, um, you know, uh, interacting with a large language model wasn't really an option for, um, someone like me, a non-programmer. So, um, you know, I was doing a lot of reading about AI then, but it felt way more abstract. Um, Max Tegmark's book, Life 3.0, I really loved, um, and that was written a few years before. Um, so when I had the opportunity, I think it was in 2021, um, you could apply to get access to GPT-3 through um, OpenAI. And um, 
people were really excited back then. Um, and so was I, you know, when you got, I got accepted and got to play around with it. It was such a big, such a big deal. It felt, um, I think everyone was, it, it was just, you know, I guess excitement's the word. Um, people really weren't, um, fearful. They're thinking like, this is going to take jobs away from writers at the time. I think people were just experimenting. Um, it was really fun. There weren't a lot of guardrails that I could see. So, you know, it was easy to get, uh, GPT-3 to say a lot of funny, wacky, things and it really felt like I was uh talking to another entity in a cool way, another intelligence. Um so when Chat GPT launched then uh, that was late 2022. Um it didn't have as many guardrails as it does now, but um you know and I think there was excitement, but that I was pretty surprised how quickly that turned into anxiety and fear and worry. I mean, sometimes rightly so. Like I have a lot of friends who are teachers who were, were it just were wondering, you know, a month after it was out, how am I going to teach kids to write now? This is such a powerful new tool. And then there were lawsuits, writer strikes, um, you know, a lot of concern. Um, I stayed excited about it the whole time, but it was interesting watching kind of the public opinion um, change. I think it's really interesting that you, because most writers I know are on the fear side, right? I'm certainly in the fear side. I have a lot of fear of around these large language models. I do think uh, one of the things I, uh, you'd written, uh, recently, I can't remember which piece you were talking about how like there's all the, there are, there is all these problems to be sorted out, but this thing is here and we're going to move through and we're going to learn how to deal with it. And I thought that was uh, poignant, but I'm wondering like you never, never a moments of, ang- of anxiety or fear around this. It was always just kind of excitement about this new thing. You know, I'm, I'm concerned about the future of the planet and like species. And I, I guess people probably choose what they are going to be, you know, where their fear focus is. So Mine's definitely species extinction. Um, I think with this being with election year happening, um, my ability to tell what's real and what's not due to like image, easy image generation, fake news, fake images, that does have me worried. You know, I think of myself as being pretty savvy, but there are times I can't tell what's real and what's not anymore. Um, but uh in ter- yeah, as a writer, I'm, I'm just, honestly, I've just been really curious about it. Um, maybe it's because I read sci-fi a lot as a, as a kid and, you know, here's my chance. To, uh, it just, it, I never thought I'd get a chance to be interacting with stuff like this, you know, in my, in my lifetime. So, um, also, I, uh, I think r- some writers who are concerned, you know, have big bodies of work. Um, they've written a lot of novels. I've written just mainly short stories. I don't have a lot of, um, there's not a lot, lot of financial risk involved for me if, uh, you know, my work is, is used as, as much as other novelists. I think also what really struck me is, you know, how it- you're able to capture the style of how these LLMs, these large language models 
I don't know, speak doesn't feel like the right word, but I don't know what kind of <laughs> other word would would work there. I mean, you you def- you talk about spending a lot of time talking to these various AIs. Um, but did you have a process for learning how to write and speak like an AI? Because for, for those who might not know, um, it, that's the narrator of the novel. Yeah, yeah. And was trained on novels of, uh, you know, of contemporary novels, a lot of post-apocalyptic novels. So, um, yeah, a lot of the writing... Um, had been done already by the time I was able to play around with um, large language models, though I think I probably perfected the voice, you know, while I was interacting with GPT. So um, it was a fun, it was a fun challenge. I think all writers, uh, you know, want to figure out how their characters see the world and how like character walks in a room, there's infinite amount of details and what detail is the narr- is the character going to use, going to focus on. And I think what's interesting about these large language models is they have so much data and they're not always aware of what we as humans would find important. So sometimes they would dive really deep into um, the answer to a question or a detail that, um, you know, didn't seem pertinent to me or interesting. They'd like throwing out numbers. Um, so I did kind of channel that in the, in the narrator's voice where, um, my AI narrator might be as interested in the type of light bulb, uh, being used as like, uh, what a character looks like, what another person looks like. Each are just as important to capturing the reality of a room. Yeah. And it's, I, just as you're speaking, I was thinking about how, you know, in a way, this AI, the story worker is operating, um, is doing the witnessing of this human character in the same way that this human character, Sen, is doing a witnessing of the last days of human existence on Earth. And the different things that, you know, through observation, this AI is learning about the world and seeing about the world kind of mirrors what Sen is supposed to be doing, you know, as she's witnessing the end of the world. That's a great observation. Yeah. I am interested in this idea of witnessing. Um, I feel like I might not have um, a huge skill set when it comes to uh, solving climate, not solving climate change, addressing climate change, but uh, I can I can witness, like I could observe, right? So I do feel that's my role as a as a writer too. Um, so yeah, I guess that kind of reflects through the novel too. Yeah, and stepping back for a second, you said that the bulk of the writing of the book was already done when you started interacting with these AI. Um, but at the same time, you know, some of the really important characters in this book, like the story worker, like Emily... And, you know, ones that are named but not really characters as much as they are entities like Jenny. Um, how, did the, how did those two pieces come together? You know, the, the climate aspect and the AI aspect, how did that marriage happen? The climate aspect came first. That was just where my mind was. You know, there's some great, great books, uh, nonfiction books coming out Um around 2015, 2016, the sixth extinction came out. That was really influential. Um, People were 
starting to, yeah, it seemed like address climate change in a, in a really serious way, um, in a really public way. Uh, so that's where the book was. Um, it was really just, it was really a climate book. I kept it really vague to how um, humans had gone extinct, why there was the sterilization virus. Um, my agent pops in and says, let's, we need a narrator. And I wanted the narrator to um, be narrating after humans were gone. Uh, so um, I could have went supernatural or, you know, intergalactic, have some alien come in. But I like the idea of AI because humans um, created AI originally. And I thought it'd be interesting to have them tell the story of the end of humanity or, yeah. Um, so first it started as a narrative device, but then, um, you know, as I explored that more, um, yeah, it was Emily even, I don't think Emily was a character at first, but it got more complex. I started getting interested more in their interactions. And What was the book like before there was a narrator in it? Was it more like the short story, just kind of an expansion of that? Uh, Sen was still there um, and her and her mom's. Um, I did want to tell the story of human extinction through um, a character who who didn't have, you know, who wasn't a, who wasn't a survivalist. Because I th- think sometimes post-apocalyptic fiction is told through people with these great survival skills. Um, it was, I, 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 uh, I kind of thought of it as a bunch of documents um, <laughs> collected in a in a box and mixed up. I wanted a sense of disorientation and fragmentation, um, which you know maybe is unpleasant for the reader. My agent. Um, this is where out. the House of Leaves comparisons come from, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. 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 I love the House of Leaves. Um, it's great. Yeah. Uh, and that, that does have some frameworks around it to make it more easier for the reader. Right. So that's essentially what I was, I was, it was suggested that I do. Um, yeah. The, without the, I mean, the book already feels like you're coming across uh, like an artifact from, from a specific time and place. Right. Then without the narrator, it would be, you almost want to like experiment with form and like put like actually ships like a bunch of documents in a box to somebody. Anyway, I'm <laughs> getting to- weird now. totally what I wanted to do. No, that's how I envisioned it. And someday I might do like a, a fine press version of that. I would love that. Uh, that seems appropriate. You can bury the box in mm-hmm. the ground and have someone find it, have it be a performance element. Yeah. yeah. So I want to, I know we've we've only been talking about we've been doing the non-spoiler discussion for 20 minutes, but I want to I think that there's a lot more to talk about in this book. If we can kind of let's just get into it. So we'll put the timestamp here and say this is the spoil like we're going into spoilers now. You everyone should absolutely read this book. It's called Afterworld, but I think like my favorite podcasts, YouTube videos, discussions around art usually come uh, when there's the full knowledge of the work and we can actually sit and like get into it a little bit more. So let's, let's do that. If we can, does everyone let's jump in. Let's Great jump idea. in. Yep. Okay. All right. Cyber listeners. We're going to take a quick break for an ad. We'll be back in a minute.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back, listeners. We're going to continue our conversation with Debbie Urbanski about her novel, Afterworld. Emily, do you want to kick us off? If not, I'm going yeah. to ask about grief. Yeah, I mean, I think we should talk about grief first, because I feel like grief underpins the entirety of this book. Like, how does climate grief differ from fear or anxiety? Because I think that it, the book, you know, so many of the characters aren't afraid. They go to their deaths, you know, seemingly unafraid with the sense of purpose, you know, with the sense of, well, that's all we could do. We've done what we can. This is the last thing we can do. The only person that seems to, or that's, you know, the only people that really seem to be fighting this are, and not even fighting this in the, in the typical post-apocalyptic novel way where it's like ragtag bands of teenagers coming up against, you know, the government. There's no government left in this book. Everything's done. It's over. Yeah, the novel, the narrative starts and we've already lost. Yeah. It's over. I mean, we've already lost... But in a way, I'm, you know, I want to talk about time in the novel later on. But it's, you know, the, we've already lost, but, you know, things have moved on. The world's won, I guess you could say, too. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Earth, Earth has won. Yeah, yeah. The people that seem to really be, you know, fighting against this in terms of, you know, internal fights against it are people like Sen. And, and I forget the name of the character, but the one who is writing all the definitions and assigned to come up with the new words that are in use at the end of the world. When, yeah. Um, I think that's a really interesting um, observation that there, there is this sense of acceptance, um, you know, excluding a few characters, some included in the book. Cause I, I feel like that's an aspect of climate grief is acceptance and acknowledgement about what's happening. Um, it's not worry or fear or anxiety, like, what if this happens, but this is going to happen, this is happening, let's accept it, acknowledge it, and recognize um, just the immensity of the of the loss that we're experiencing. So, um, you know, it is really, it is really sad. And that's one reason why I wrote this book, because I was so sad about all the species going extinct. Um, and uh, species we don't even know are going extinct. And, you know, there's a little, like, people talk about de-extinction. We could bring back a few species in theory, um, but we're never going to get them all back. Or even, I was thinking about glaciers today. Um, not sure, not sure why, but glaciers came to mind. And um, that's not something we could de-extinct even, you know, and, and, in the last couple of years, my family and I uh, do a lot of hiking. We've noticed, um, went to the Canadian Rockies last summer and could tell just from our last visit, the glaciers are are so much smaller and they're so beautiful. And they're just, you know, by the time my kids are old, they're probably all going to be gone. So 
I think grief is, is really appropriate. Um, it's, you know, it's a huge word and I think, um, I think it's appropriate to feel, to feel and recognize, um, that at the same time, I think there could be acknowledgement and acceptance and, um, it doesn't mean we just like throw up our arms and, um, I'm talking about like current reality, but you know, there, there are things we could do and should do. And, um, but yeah, grief it is, it's, it is sad. When did you, are you I'm trying to think of how to phrase this? Are you grieving right now? And when did you get to that place where it wasn't anxiety and fear anymore, where it became grief? Um, I think it probably happened through my reading, um, you know, of, of nonfiction books. There's this book called The Annihilation of Nature that just goes through species after species that we're, we've lost, we're near losing. And um, it was it was just a brutal read, you know, and it's not theoretical, you know, it's, it's like, we've already lost these, these are on the brink of losing. And so I think once I became aware of that, I just felt like, oh my God, it's like all around us, you know, the, just this, this huge loss. So, um, yeah, I think it was through the books that I, I read and, and lately it's become, um, I mean, I'm grateful for this. And I, I wonder if it's, be, if more people are starting to feel this way, cause it does seem like, extinction and what we're losing is in the news daily practically or or just in terms of you know wildfires we're losing like clear skies in the summer our ability to go outside and um do you think it's it's becoming harder to uh ignore right that we're already in it it's not theoretical so much fiction a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction there's a problem it's overcome heroism, uh, catharsis. We're very happy. Uh, I don't read a lot of books that are, that feel like dirges, that feel like laments, that feel like despair. Um, what is the purpose of despair in fiction? Why, why lament like this? There is a push, I think, um, for kind of comfort, uh, fiction right now and weirdly I think post-apocalyptic fiction often is comfort fiction where I mean I love I love I read it for you know it is like my fun beach reads post-apocalyptic fiction because it is you know you go through this intense experience and you emerge on the other side and everything is okay and it's like you know um, we're kind of rebuilding society in some way and and things are going to be fine um, so to me that um it just didn't feel uh, as honest as I wanted my writing to be right now. Um, so uh, that's why I was interested in exploring, I guess, ideas of despair and and grief. And I do think it's important for fiction to examine, you know, like all of our human emotions and to reflect all of human experience. And And part of that is, you know, being, feeling a lot of loss. Um, but I, I do think, and we touched upon this a little bit earlier, um, you know, it, uh, despair, it does depend on whose point of view or what point of view you're looking at. And so I am interested in a more ecocentric point of view. Um, and 
from the human perspective, uh, from the human physical perspective, yes, uh, you know, the end of the book is, is, is pretty sad. Um, there is the possibility that we still exist um, in, a, in a mirror world, <laughs> afterworld, and the world itself, looking at it from, you know, the point of view of the multitude of species and the earth itself um, is in a good spot. So from that point of view, it's maybe a hopeful, hopeful book. I'm just thinking about all of the little notes that Emily would have for the story worker saying, you know, you're getting too into the, you know, the human perspective here. We, we need to back up a little bit and focus on the wildflowers and focus on the important thing here, which is that earth is being saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was easy for me to, uh, there was some tension between me wanting to just describe um, nature nonstop. I was kind of in Emily's uh, Emily's camp there. I really enjoyed nature descriptions and I did way too much research on trees for this novel. <laughs> I have so, so many books about trees and flowers and birds. Um, but yeah, the tension was fun to play around. Yeah, I want to, again, talk a little bit about AI and how interesting it was, this juxtaposition within the book between this climate despair and this despair about, you know, the end of the human world and this hope that we have in AI as the future of humanity. When both of those things feel very prescient right now, understandably, um, and both, as we talked about earlier, have both fear and hope attached to them. You know, I do... I do feel there is the idea that technology is going to be able to get us out of um, the climate situation we're in. Uh, techno utopia, utopianists, um, and I don't know if I if I totally how I feel about that. Um, but I think we will need to use technology in some way and AI in some way. I mean, I'm sure AI is already being used in modeling and to help, you know, process enormous um, amounts of data so we can make better predictions. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that it gets a little bit, and by a little bit, I mean extremely spoilery because this is the end of the book. Um, I want to talk about the point in which the story worker becomes not this, you know, third person narrator, but becomes this first person narrator and becomes a part of Sen's, you know, timeline. I don't even know if that's the correct way of, of describing this because time is, you know, time is fascinating in this book. Um, but the story worker becomes personified and it's just so interesting watching the story worker come to know Sen, come to feel for Sen and then having to let Sen go. I want to talk about this just all in the context of humanity's decision to leave Earth for this afterworld and then become an AI like the story worker. Become, like, live in this parallel universe. I, that's not even the right way to describe it. Live in this simulation. I kept it vague intentionally. Uh... And people have had interesting reactions to it. Someone thought it was totally a lie, 
like a lie in the, you know, it's something that the AI made up to make humans feel better, kind of like a comforting bedtime story. Um, uh, it, it could also be a simulation. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of like that the, my AI characters might know things that I don't. Um, so I'm not, um, I'm, I am, I, I leave it again, open-ended, but did, how does humanity feel about this? Like, will where they're going be a replacement for for Earth? Would they choose? Would this be what they choose to do if they had a choice? Some of them certainly, but um, Sun, for instance, you know, does not feel like the trade off is going to be worth it, and um, she would rather have her current planet in whatever state it is um, than. Uh, lose that and and go live in a digital utopia whatever whatever that means um i did someone questioned you know why is this uh the narrator why why does the story worker want to become human out of all the things i mean i guess i think i've emily say this actually like out of all the things you could become why are you choosing to become human and in my mind, I think that comes out of the story workers' close study of Sen. And um, I really feel like the more we pay attention to something, we or like any, any, the more anything pays attention to anything, the more you begin to care for it. I found that in my own life with um, when I started looking closely, I, I got into macro photography on a really basic level. And I, when I started looking at insects or weeds, <laughs> like in my backyard, uh, lots of weeds, um, I just was blown away at how intricate, you know, dandelions are and and ants. And I really began to, I can no longer um, squish, <laughs> squish ants. Or, you know, I have to like usher them out of the house and that sort of... Um, person now because I've seen them close up and I feel like that's uh, probably the story worker had that same sort of experience. So now I want to talk about something that really struck me throughout the book, which is the ethics of having children and Sen's relationship with her mothers that hit home, like very much home for me. Um, I, I'm gay I recently started like fertility stuff to to freeze my eggs, which I am one of the very few people that I know of my close friends who are interested in having kids. Mm. Um, not just because, but many because of the climate aspects. And, you know, what kind of a world are we leaving? What kind of a world will this person inherit? What am I cursing a new person to? Um, but yeah, it's, it's just so prescient for right now. And yeah, I just, I I just want to hear your thoughts more about that, how, how that became such a topic that you explored in the book. Um, yeah, it just, it was an endless, it was so interesting to see that in the pages of the book when it felt like it's something, you know, that I've been exploring personally very closely recently. That's, that's really interesting. I haven't, you know, there's been a lot of news stories about the dropping fertility rate. And I don't know if anyone's connected that to 
the idea that maybe people don't want to bring forth kids into this world because of the climate um, and put the two together myself. But um, I have heard, um, you know, even uh, from my generation, you know, my kids are teenagers, but I know when, when um, my generation was thinking about having kids, some of my friends were, were thinking about that too, because, you know, there's, the world hasn't felt great for a while. Right. But it certainly hasn't gotten better. Um, so I do have, I do have two kids. Um, I, I did want to say uh, that I, I, I didn't intend after all, I don't intend it as a blueprint for like a solution for climate change. You know, I, I love, I really love earth and species and I also love humans. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think anybody's reading it as a, you know, we should mass sterilize everybody and just say goodbye to this. I think it's a great parable. Someone did write that on a comment for essay that I wrote. So I just wanted to, I've had with science fiction, um, people read that as, uh, as, as prediction, hopeful with hopeful thinking. So thank you for not, not reading that <laughs> that way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's like, a, it is a tough decision. Um, I do think that bringing kids into the world does create a lot of love and compassion. And it did really change my uh, perspective. Um, so personally, I think it was a good decision for me. Like I suddenly, things weren't all about, I mean, things, I, things were about me, uh, in my life. And then all of a sudden I had kids and they weren't, there's other ways to make that happen. But for me, kids, kids did that. Um, and, uh, I also am hopeful about this generation of kids and future generation of kids because they're growing up in such a different world and environment. I mean, that's both good and bad. Like my kids have seen, we don't really get snow anymore, you know, sledding. Nobody's been able to go sledding this winter, snowshoeing, skiing. I and mean, that's really weird for Syracuse. Um, my daughter remembers fondly when they used to have, um, you know, snow all the time. We used to have snow all the time, tons of snow days. So she's already, you know, aware and grieving, um, in her own way. But I, I do think that's going to influence, you know, the careers that they take and the choices they make and hopefully the future politicians having grown up and um, being aware from a young age of climate and what, you know, our situation, I, I, I am hopeful that they're going to make better decisions. So much of the relationship that's explored in this book is between Sen and her mom's and just the concept of motherhood and of being a parent, but not, you know, not just, you know, okay, I'm caring for this person now, but just like what motherhood means. And I think you explored it beautifully in all the different ways throughout the book and just the choices that we have to make about what we can leave to our children and the choices that we make for our children or in spite of our children. Yeah. That's a that's uh, that's a great summary of what I was trying to do and trying to widen. I mean, I just I feel like portrayals of motherhood often, again, in post-apocalyptic fiction, are pretty narrow. But I felt that way just in in novels in general. I've I've often been given the feedback uh, that 
the, you know, this relationship doesn't feel realistic. My, my, my mother dot, my mother child relationship doesn't fit. I think people's ideas of, um, what a mother child relationship could look like, but in my experience of raising kids, you know, it's not what I expected it to be. It's not what I've seen portrayed. Um, it's a lot more individual and complex and, you know, so, um, yeah, I, I am really interested in, in exploring motherhood. Um, yeah, that was a big topic in this book. Yeah. And I feel like the Brady Bunch, you know, system of, of parenting is not really going to apply in the apocalypse either. So yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you can't literally like son's moms couldn't save her. So, um, just trying to absorb that, uh, you know, you always, and, and is saving, saving wouldn't even be the right decision. You know, what would they be saving her for? So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also been interesting to, to read that while also thinking about so much activism being done through the lens of motherhood, you know, of making the world a better place for your children of fighting and having perspective on conflict, on climate, gun violence as a mother. Yeah. Could you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, getting to the point of no return, like Sen's moms did and realizing you know, going more into the the place of despair and realizing that you've done all that you can do to, you know, to get to the point where you're leaving edible plant descriptions in the margins of books so that your child could live maybe another week and hoping that it'll all be over soon. It's just, it's crushing. It sounds really crushing when you say it. It does. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that sounds really sad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that that is heavy. That's heavy stuff. Do you see the book as depressing as we do? <laughs> I say that in the best possible way, honestly. Um. Well, so uh, you know, I have I have depression. Um, I'm on medication. I try to be very open about that. But uh, you know, I I was I was in pretty deep depression when I wrote this and it's been interesting. Um, I think my outlet was just so bleak on so many levels that it didn't read. It didn't read. It didn't read <laughs> depressing to me. So hearing you, hearing you describe it, Emily, like that, it does sound now like, yeah, that's really sad. Um, but again, I'm also interested in, I find a lot of joy in the natural descriptions and, um, you, you know, the, the descriptions of the world um, post-human when the world's kind of regenerating. Um, I mean, I had a lot of fun writing those in particular, imagining um, a humanless world, what that would look like, uh, how we would describe that if we're not there to describe it. So, um I could see, yes, I could see that it's both um, depressing, but I'm also going to keep pushing that like hopeful beauty angle too. Like I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, the depressing really made way for just, you know, a fascination and finding the beauty within this world and finding the beauty within the story and love and care existing even at the end of it all. And that being something that's beautiful seeing that, you know, life is happening with, you know, 
animals are being born or dying and the earth is blooming still and just yeah i think as humans it's just so it's so complicated to to think and you know the the mindset that these characters have to adopt of this will be better because we are gone yeah yeah um yeah and you know uh, i i debated how far in the future to set the novel um it, i leave it a little vague to um but i was tempted i was tempted to set it like 20 years in the future uh just because I find that really alarming and for us to think we would need to make those kind of decisions so soon. Um, it's in my mind, it's set more like 2100. So um, I feel like there's a little less, uh, less pressure, less um, we don't have to imagine ourselves in that situation, but uh, I think that's even why it makes it more interesting to, to, to talk about, you know, what kind of a planet we're leaving to future generations by thinking of this as like the future generation. While I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, like around 2100, around then, that like how, if I have a child, when will that child have a child? And when will that child have a child? Who, who is this? Right. Who is sent to me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would it be your great grandchildren, maybe? I mean, that seems really close still, to be honest, right? To yeah. imagine. That- and as it should, yeah. I think. Yeah, right. Before we get too close to the end, um, I did want to ask you about one thing, which was something that I noticed was that there are maybe two men in this story. And I thought that that was a fascinating choice that I really only like picked up at the end of the book. Yeah, I'm curious how many people will pick that up because it was intention. It was intentional. A lot of I did it for a lot of reasons. Uh, a lot of my short stories previously, I've worked a lot with dynamics of female male dynamics, and I felt like I fully explored that. And I wanted to get away from that as far as possible. And then also, there's just a lot of. Um, like the the male presence in post apocalyptic fiction is so um, so strong <laughs> that um, every time a male would enter, I just I, I had trouble like getting away from that. Um, but I also felt like this is my novel. I um, you know the short stories. Uh, I felt like I was writing in uh, emotional response to stuff going on, but the novel I felt like I had more control over. Um, so I kind of wanted to create a world that I I felt like for the first time in writing, I got to create my own world and um, I just didn't want guys in it. <laughs> so, um, but it did allow me to explore motherhood more too. And I think it allowed me to explore the stuff I wanted to explore more and it felt really freeing. I think it's really throws on its head the trope of, you know, I just keep thinking of like the Katniss Everdeen at the, you know, post-apocalyptic whatever of like, I am going, I am the teenager who is personally equipped to save the world. And that is not the case here. Sen is not equipped. She is not trying to save the world. She is just trying to live through the end of it. Yeah. And I always, um, you know, I, I don't have many 
uh, survival skills either, even though I like the outdoors. So I, I never could relate to those characters very much. You know, I always thought I'd be one of those characters who, who gets hardly mentioned just as someone who, you know, dies off early on in, in the book. So, <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're always so so good, uh, good at surviving the people these stories are about. Yeah, I need some hot water personally. Um, <laughs> would like would like indoor plumbing at the end of the world if possible. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that fascinates me at the end of the book the the way that time is constructed. We talk about there's this virus S that comes through, and it, the explanation of it is I would say a little bit around midway, maybe a little bit before midway through the novel. Um, it's a virus that's released and sterilizes the human population. Um, but then at the end of the book, you have Sen giving birth. And you have, at the, even further in the end of the book, you realize that the timestamps between Sen's death and the birth of Afterworld being so far off from one another. And I both am am prickling at myself for being like, I can't believe you're asking an author to explain this to you. (laughs) Um, But it just truly, it, it didn't leave questions in my head in a bad way. It just left me endlessly fascinated. And just looking at like, you know, thinking about how the world begins for someone at birth the world is beginning specifically in the situation of the birth of the universe question mark um through this pregnancy and also that there's just this downtime between the end of sin and the end of humanity and the start of afterworld those are all great questions. They really are. Um, and great points. Uh, you know, I, I really like ambiguity when I read. I like thinking about, um, I like peop- I like when uh, a book I've read, and I read a book and I have a different interpretation than somebody else. You know, I like that when an author allows, allows for that. So um, I intentionally kind of... Uh, left things open-ended um in 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 the end um i i wrote it was it was a really like a joyful writing process the ending because i wrote kind of emotionally rather than logically if that makes any sense so um it's I mean, sometimes writers, actually, I was just listening to an interview with a writer who I love, Gerald Renane, and he said he's written stuff he doesn't totally understand. So I think it's legit for me to say, you know, I don't, I don't have like a logical read on the ending. So I love, you know, and I think anyone's interpretation is, is, is correct. It just felt emotionally uh, true to me. And after kind of inhabiting the story worker's mind it for so long, it just felt like this is what's happening. You know, I don't get to experience that a lot of my writing, but this was one case where um, it just kind of gave, gave birth, you know? Like, yeah. Appeared. Yeah. I mean, it, it very much feels like you in, you know, talking about how you went from, you know, thinking logically and writing logically to feeling emotional towards the end. That really feels like the path that the story worker took through the novel. 
That's really cool. Because, <laughs> that, yeah, that was my path. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end, Emily, unless you've got another question. No, I was just, yeah, I, I really loved this book. I don't read a lot of, like, um, dystopian or, or post-apocalyptic stuff because I get upset very easily. <laughs> and this was very well worth it. So thank you for writing something so excellent and so thought-provoking. Thank you so much. These were, these were great questions. Really thoughtful. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.